Looks like we are live. So thanks for thanks for joining us, Mike. Welcome to the Investor Lab. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, Goose. I'm looking forward to getting a bit loose on tax legislation. Yeah, let's get let's get a little loose, right? So Firstly, again, I just want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming on board and sharing. This is going to become a podcast episode as well. So why don't we just unpack this a little bit at the start? So what we're going to be talking about today is unlocking the hidden riches in real estate and simultaneously making tax fun. Now, that's, that's no small feat, but I believe that we have the man for the job. Mike, why don't you tell people a little bit about who you are and what the hell you do? You set the bar high. Just so people don't think I'm a terribly weird bloke, although they'll come to their own conclusions, I actually wanted to be a fighter pilot. So this is not going to be like one of those chase your dreams, inspirational TED talks. But I did find myself in the world of quantity surveying and dry tax legislation. And for some weird sort of bizarre reason, I actually love it. So I'm a construction cost estimating guy with a sort of accountant hybrid sort of thing. I guess that's where us depreciation guys sit in the space. A construction cost estimating accountant hybrid kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a bachelor of construction management. So quantity surveyors are the best people to tell you how much it costs to build something. With tax depreciation, there's an estimating component, but you've also got to understand the legislation as well. We need to be registered tax agents just for that little narrow band of, of legislation. But it's a, it's a bloody hard thing to explain at barbecues. We're going to get into why we're here in a moment, right? You're the director of MCG Quantity Surveyors, right? Which is mm-hmm. yep. fastest growing? Yeah, so in 2018, we made the financial reviews fast 100 list. So we're the only other the quantity surveyor on that list. So... I think at that point we were 91st fastest growing established business in Australia, which is, you know, hardly the podium, but, you know, we're competing against these software guys that can grow, you know, a thousand percent in a year. So for us, it was a big deal. We're pretty happy with it. Yeah, nice, nice. And I think that, that, that at least by one measure, that would definitely put you guys as being at the thrust and at the forefront of quantity surveying in Australia by at least a measure. So it's a very... It's an honour to be able to, to have you on board here, to be able to share Thank stuff you. with us. So. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> nice. And look, for those of you who don't know what I do, other than talk, a lot of people see me talking a lot of the time. I'm either talking on videos or on podcasts and all kinds of stuff. Aside from talking, what we do specifically is we help investors, property investors, to build scalable property portfolios and replace their income. Now, finding, selecting and acquiring high-value assets for people's portfolio that's where we specialize but it's all well and good to get cash flow and it's all well and good to get growth but one of the things that we want to cover today is how to get even more out of everything that you've got so what we're going to talk about today and the purpose of this live webcast is to as we said at the start unlock the hidden riches in real estate and make tax funds specifically what we're going to be talking about is depreciation and how you can really maximize the benefits of the assets that you buy ongoing. You might be wondering, like, is this for me? Like, not that many people get super excited about tax. When you start talking about depreciation schedules, it's like, "Ah." and there's a lot of misconceptions around it. And I think one of the biggest things and one of the reasons that I wanted to do this, Mike, is because a lot of people don't understand how applicable depreciation can be for all kinds of properties, which is really why I wanted to unpack a lot of this. But this is really for anyone who owns a property or ever plans to own a property. You know, this is, this is vital knowledge. Do you agree? 
Yeah, I believe so. I mean, if you like or have an interest in money or not giving too much of it away to the government, then I would call it pretty vital, yeah. So, I mean, it really is only for investors. It has to be an income-producing property. So if you either own an investment or are planning to invest, I think it's important to have at least some base-level knowledge of what depreciation is and how it helps you to grow your property portfolio. And I think we can make it fun. I, it's an uphill battle, but I think we can have a bit of fun with it. I think we can cover off the basics. And if anyone's got any questions, we can get weird with it. But there's a few sort of just key things that I think that you can take away that'll help you to understand appreciation and its power. Awesome. Well, look, I've got a bunch of questions that I want to ask rapid fire, kind of questions that I get asked as a buyer's agent that I get asked by our clients and people that are interested in property. I'm going to go back to the only for investors statement you just made there in a moment. A lot of people don't even understand what depreciation is. Why don't we just give us a quick synopsis of what depreciation means and then we can talk about what that kind of mechanism is and then how to apply it. How's that? Yeah, that's fine. But depreciation essentially is an allowance for the wear and tear and the decline in value of a property over time. So as you provide rental accommodation, you're providing a service, right? The government's out of the public housing sort of business. It's gone from five and a half to I think three and a half in the last 20 years. So what the government allows you to do is to say, okay, well, you own this asset, which will be the structure and maybe the fixtures and fittings. And as they wear out just through use, you can actually claim their decline in value as a tax deduction, like every other tax deduction, like sun cream if you're a tradie and textbooks if you're a student. I'm going to be playing devil's advocate here. I understand a bit about tax depreciation, but I'm going to be talking from the perspective of a lot of people who don't. So I really like what you said there about service, right? So the, the government has gotten out of the, basically the housing business. And then really what we're talking about is investors as business owners providing that service, which is something I'm massively big on. I know you are too, service, servitude, and really providing for the people and clients in your custodianship, i.e. the tenants, but then it being able to claim back the expenses of your business against your tax. So Yeah, I mean, that doesn't have to be any more, more specific than that. I've got a, a slide that's pretty basic that I could show as well, if that would be appropriate for you. Mate, that would be fantastic. And for those listening on the podcast, when this goes on there, what we'll do is, Mike, I'll get a copy of the slides after this and we can drop them in the show notes as well. And then, yeah. and that way people can check those out too, even if they check this out afterwards. How's that? Yeah, so for, for people that are just listening, and probably that's the way to do it because I've definitely got a radio face, this is basically sort of considering a property investor that's earning a hundred grand a year, just because that's easy for my numbers, right? If they own a property that has a thousand dollars worth of depreciation deductions within a year, so we, we go to the property and we prepare an estimate of the construction value and the fixtures and fittings and what have you. The first year we say there's eleven thousand dollars worth of tax deductions. That means that in the eyes of the tax office, instead of earning $100,000, you're actually earning $100,000 minus the 11, which brings it to 89. So if you go to the ATO and go to their simple tax calculator, so you can go and pick the financial year, enter your taxable income, and it'll tell you the tax payable. The tax payable on 100 grand is $24,632. The tax payable on 89 is 20,562. So in this example, if you're on 100 grand, you get $11,000 worth of deductions, you're actually getting $4,070 back in your pocket in less tax to pay. That makes sense? 
That makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting though, because a lot of people would normally think, oh, I've got $11,000 tax deductions. Hey, I get $11,000 tax back. But it's actually not that simple. It comes off your pre-tax salary, right? Yeah, and it's based on your taxable income. So if you're on a 30% uh, marginal tax rate, then you would say you're getting, you know, $30 for every $100 worth of deductions. Yeah, okay. So that's an interesting, I do have a bunch of questions, but I'm just going to go, I'm going to go ad hoc, I'm going to go hog wild here. So you said if you're in a marginal tax rate of 30%, what if people are on a lower income? I mean, is this something that only really benefits rich people or, or what's the perspective there? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. And we had, uh, we had a look at this because the perception is it, it's way better off for the, the top end of town. So if you're earning a million dollars a year, you're on the, the highest uh, marginal tax rate. So you're actually getting more of a benefit. But when we looked at it across the average um, salary for different age brackets, the vast majority of people are very, very close. So there w- it wasn't actually as big a gap as what I thought. It actually broke the story that I had in my head. So yeah, the, the higher the marginal tax rate, the more benefit you're going to get for depreciation. If you're on a low income, it might be a matter of chatting to your accountant. Okay, so there's the cost involved in getting a depreciation schedule. So is it worth paying X amount to get a certain amount of tax deductions? And your accountant's the best person to say, well, you're on this marginal rate or you're a student and somehow, you know, you've got $5,000 of income, but you own an investment property. You know, that's a fairly rare scenario. Most people that own investment property are working. They're bringing in a reasonable amount of income, even if it if it's not, you know, 100 grand, it might be 40 or 50 grand. So it's likely there's still a big benefit for them. Yeah, 100%. There's always, everyone's got tax that they want to save, that's for sure. We understand what depreciation is, right? It's like you've got assets within your business, which is your investment property. They are wearing out over time, so therefore they're losing value. And you're able to claim that loss against your tax yep. using a mechanism called a depreciation schedule. Is that right? Yeah, that's perfect. I like that. <laughs> Probably better than I've ever explained it. Well, you can, you can keep that one, mate. That's, that's fine. You can have that one for free. Why don't you explain exactly what is a depreciation schedule? It's a pretty boring 18-odd page report with lots of numbers on it. And that led me to actually, as part of our service, provide a, a video with each depreciation schedule or it comes like a day after as an automated thing to say, here is how to read your depreciation schedule because they're really written for accountants. And we basically say, look, we are sorry we have to give you this pile of numbers, but they want the detail, right? <laughs> but essentially what it is, is we estimate the value of everything that is depreciable. So if you talk about a brand new house, for example, there's two buckets of depreciation. There's the building structure, that's sort of one side, and then there's the plant and equipment items. So if we take the building structure, we estimate the value of the cost to build that property and then that gets written off at a set percentage each year, which is 2.5%. So the schedule shows what your 2.5% deduction means each financial year. And then with the plant and equipment items, that's carpets, blinds, kitchen appliances, they all depreciate at different rates and there are different methods of depreciation, which I'm sure you'll ask me about later. But essentially that schedule just shows you what are the tax deductions that you're able to claim each financial year and it goes for 40 years. So the schedule is just basically a report saying how much tax can I claim back each year based on the construction value and the decline in value of the assets within my investment property. Let's touch on that right now. So you talked about building write-off and plant and equipment. You kind of explained those two things differently. I mean, does that 
indicate that you could do one without the other? So could you, yes. okay, how would that work? Yeah, so if you have a property that you're buying today and it's one year old or five years old, as long as it's not brand new, the, the legislation changed based on the budget speech in May 2017. So anyone buying a property after May 2017, you can only claim the plant and equipment items if you're either buying a new property or you're putting them in yourself as a reno. So really the majority of our depreciation schedules now would be without plant and equipment items in the original structure. So we'd be just be Division 43 building allowances. An example where you might just have plant and equipment is let's say you buy a property that was built prior to the cutoff date for depreciation on the building structure, which is the 16th of September 1987, and then you decide to do a reno and you only improve it with plant and equipment items. So let's say all you do is you put in a new oven, a new cooktop, carpet, vinyl, and blinds, right? Those are all plant and equipment items. If you put in kitchen cupboards, that would be building structure, but those would all be plant and equipment. So you could, in theory, have a depreciation schedule with just plant and equipment. Interesting, interesting, because that's what uh, a lot of our clients do, that kind of thing. We typically summarize it as carpet, paint, fixtures, and fittings is, you know, a typical kind of simple cosmetic renovation. So that could be a situation where you bought an older property and you just fix up carpet, paint, fixtures, and fittings, and then you can claim that down. Yeah, interesting. Yep. And that'll probably be a mix. Most renovations will be a mix of building improvements and plant and equipment improvements. Like if you put in a shower screen or you do any tiling, that's considered part of the building structure. If you do a concrete slab or an extension or move walls, that's going to be structural deductions. It's a point of interest. Is there any like really value-based difference? If you spent $10,000 on building improvements, I'm not saying that we should start doing things purely based on a tax strategy, but just out of interest. If you spent $10,000 on building improvements mm. versus spending $10,000 on plant and equipment, so just $10,000 worth of air conditioners, for example, would they yeah. have different benefits would one give you a better tax saving than another? Yeah, absolutely. So if you spent $10,000 on tiling, you would get $250 a year worth of deductions. If you spent $10,000 on carpet, you're going to get 2500 in the first year of claim. So that's an article that we sort of shared many years ago to say, well, if you're planning a renovation and it doesn't really matter the materials that you're putting in. Floor coverings are a big one. So if you're doing a reno, you want to put plant and equipment items to get the best deductions in there. So floor coverings for, that are classified plant and equipment are carpets, vinyl, and floating timber floors. If you're doing polished concrete or tile, or it's a hardwood floor that's being polished, they're all considered building structure. And the real difference is, is that those plant and equipment items, um, with carpet, for example, it has an eight-year effective life now. It used to be 10, but it's just changed. So it actually means there's a 25% depreciation rate instead of a 2.5% depreciation rate. So it's 10 times better from a deduction point of view. Wow, okay, that's really interesting. So don't do any tiling, basically, just carpet the lot. No, I mean, like, I, I like to say to people, don't live your whole world sort of trying to minimise your tax because sometimes people say, I want to buy an investment property to pay less tax. Like, what should I get? I'm saying, well, you should get a unit in a complex of, say, 800 or even 2,000 if you could get it. Ideally, it will have cinemas and... 15 levels of basements and gyms and pools coming out your ears. But imagine the strata fees. 
And imagine when you put it for rent and there's 250 other people trying to rent their place in the same development. It could be a, a nightmarish investment, right? But it's best for deductions. You know, there's deductions and then there's investing for capital growth and yield. They're, they're not, they don't always meet together. Yeah, they, they don't meet together. But this is why we're trying to have this conversation to try and work out how do we mesh these two worlds so you can get the, be- the best of both worlds. Because a lot of people think, oh, the only way if I want to reduce my taxable income is to, is to ne- get negatively geared property. But the, what we're saying here is there are other ways and other mechanisms by which you can get those benefits and, in fact, really reap the rewards of buying the right kind of assets which are going to help you progress. So you mentioned 1987 as a cutoff date. I couldn't remember the date, the month that you said there, but does that mean that any properties older, any houses or dwellings or buildings older than that, you can't depreciate them? The short answer is no. We're going to have to go a little bit, little bit deep into the legislation. Okay, go, <laughs> the be, 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 be kind, be friendly, be friendly. Take a deep breath, maybe have a Red Bull or a Allen's Lolly or something. This sounds sponsored now. I'm not getting any money. <laughs> Actually, get in touch. So... Yeah, the cutoff date is, is the 16th of September 1987 for residential property. So you need to buy a property that's commenced construction after the 16th of September 87 to be able to claim original deductions on the structure as it was built when it was built. I'm talking about the original when it was built in, say, 1988 or 89. However, if it was built in the 70s, and it was renovated, say, in 2000, then you can claim the structural deductions on that renovation, even if you didn't do it. Let's say you bought it today and it was renovated 10 years ago, you'll be able to claim the value of those renovations on that structural component. So a lot of people ask me the question, oh, is there an example of when you can say like a depreciation schedule is definitely not worthwhile? The answer is no. I can definitely tell you when it is worthwhile. And the reason is because those older properties, it depends on what has happened from a renovation point of view. Bought in 1970. Let's say someone buys a, bought a house in 1970. It was built in 1970. They renovated it in 1982 and you bought it in 1994. Does that mean, can you claim depreciation on other people's renovations or is it only stuff that you've done yourself? Now, you can claim it on other people's renovations as long as it's after that cutoff date. And depending on what the renovation is, um, there are some nuances with the date. But yeah, if it was renovated in, in 82, for example, you wouldn't be able to claim but that. But if it was but in 92, you, you would. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't have to have spent the money yourself because there's really consideration for that in your purchase price. So when you go and you buy something, the agent is not saying, well, the kitchen was renovated 10 years ago, so we've taken that off the purchase price. That's part of it, right? That's what you're buying. You're buying that improved asset. So you're purchasing something that has that qualifying asset value. You don't need to incur the cost on that reno because you're actually buying it as part of the purchase price. Okay. I think we've got a pretty good idea like what we can claim depreciation on and, and all of that kind of stuff. And we've sort of spoken about, okay, property ages and, and how it can be applied. It's pretty good. It sounds like there's a lot of benefits there for investors. You mentioned earlier about the different ways or different types or, or kind of scales of depreciation. So as I understand it, there's two ways to depreciate, prime cost and diminishing value. Now, yeah, not, to, not to get too down into the weeds here, but what's the difference? Uh, Do, uh, yeah, and there's there's even more ways to do it if you're talking commercial, but we'll leave that because, you know, it is almost nine-night time for people. I don't want to send them off. <laughs> but 
Yeah, prime cost and diminishing are the two accepted methods for residential property owners to claim depreciation. And really, it made much more of a difference pre-2017 when plant and equipment existed on old properties. Now it really only makes much of a difference on new properties because the building structure stays the same. It's 2.5% whether it's diminishing value or prime cost. But what happens with diminishing value is it's a higher depreciation rate to start with and it diminishes over time. So when you think about um, the deductions in year one, it's asset value times by depreciation rate is year one. When you claim year two, it's asset value minus year one claim and then times it by the depreciation rate. So each year it goes down and down and down. Whereas the prime cost method stays flat. So with, um, let's say, an asset that has a 10-year effective life, it would be 10% of the asset's value each year until it runs out. So it's absolutely flat. So most property investors would be using the diminishing value method because it gives you the highest deductions for the first, say, six to seven years, and then it normally overlaps. An example of where you might want to claim lower deductions in the beginning and more at the end is if you say work at Subway, but you're studying to be a brain surgeon. So you're on like 30 grand a year and then you go to 390, you'd want the deductions when you're on that higher salary. That was an accountant forcing me to come up with an idea about when someone would use the prime cost method. I've never seen that myself. That's roughly how it how it works. But if I can decide what people remember from this, I would say that that's one of the least useful things to try and retain. You can certainly Google it. I've written a lot of blogs on it. I can show the comparison. That's pretty dry stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but it it is interesting nonetheless, because, you know, when people are you know, out there in the world, we've bought a new apartment and we've, we've had, we were like, oh, what is all this stuff? You know, what is, a, what is the prime cost and what is the diminishing? We have to go through all this kind of learning. So a lot of people don't understand it. So it's really good to touch on it. Let's say I bought a property now and it was renovated five years ago. Fantastic. How do I know whether the previous owner, or does it matter, whether the previous owner has already depreciated or claimed depreciation on the plant? and equipment or does that even matter is that a factor does that make sense yeah the the tax officers said fairly clearly that that the tax affairs of the previous owner aren't really your concern you don't you're not obliged to go and chase them i think there is a, a little bit of legislation that says if they hand it to you then you may be fixed to use that if that's a real cost it's like when you do the reno yourself like if you sort of say Oh, Mike, I extended the house, but I'm real handy with swinging a hammer. So it would have cost 80 grand, but I only really cost me eight grand in materials. I would say, well, that's fantastic, Goose, but you've got the benefit of that, and that's your upside. You can only claim what you actually outlaid, right? So that's sort of the bad news in, in that situation. But yeah, most of the time, if you buy a renovated property, no one's telling you how much they spent on it. It might be an agent, but I mean, that's likely to be inflated anyway. Hello to any agents out there. You're not all dodgy, but I'm sure there's... there's, there's (laughs) (laughs) I've got some good agent mates, but you know, you're not going to have the invoices for that work. And often people that do the work themselves don't keep their invoices because they're living in the property and they never intended it for any investment. So that's where you need someone qualified to estimate the construction values. And that's what a quantity Right. Okay. So you're touching a good point there because who the hell keeps receipts? So if I buy a house and it's been renovated five years ago, do you go around to everyone's house? Do I go, hey, hey, Mike, I've just bought this property down the road and you go in there with a notebook and you 
go and start taking notes? Or how, how does that work? We do. Not me personally. I used to do a lot of that, but now I'm sort of just, you know, living the high life, talking to high flyers like you, you know. Most of our depreciation reports will require inspection. There's a couple of instances where that wouldn't be required, where we know construction costs, it's a brand new build and we have plans and specs and that sort of stuff. But anyone buying something established, we would physically go to the property and undertake an inspection where we're measuring it, we're noting all the plant and equipment items. And you get a pretty good forensic eye for changes to the property. I mean, I can't go out to dinner without looking at the fire services and the you know, emergency warning indicator panels and all this sort of stuff. It makes me a real hoot to go out with. I'm, I was going to say, that, it sounds, it sounds like, that sounds like a fun, uh, sounds like a fun dinner. <laughs> yeah, stick with me, mate. We'll, we'll hit the town and I'll tell you all about fire indicator panels. Okay, so what we've covered is like, we've clarified what depreciation is, what a depreciation schedule is, uh, when and how you can kind of use that We've even touched on the, the very dry topics of prime costs and diminishing value. We've covered what we can claim depreciation on, how it works for renovations that you do and renovations that other people do. So I think we've sort of covered quite a few of the scenarios, right? Yeah. Is, there, is there any other kind of scenarios that you think people would benefit from? Yeah, I think so. Like going back to if I can decide what people remember from this presentation, it won't be the haircut. There's really three triggers that will tell you whether you need a depreciation schedule. And I think if you can remember the three triggers, like even if you don't understand exactly how it works or understand the legislation, you'll at least you'll at least be twigged to know, all right, well, there's likely some deductions in this and I should get in touch with the quantity surveyor who's likely to help free of charge. I don't know anyone out there that's sort of saying we'll charge you for advice. We're not lawyers. The triggers are you buy a brand new property. And the reason is because you've got the building structure deductions and you've got the plant and equipment items. So if you've got a taxable income, you buy a brand new property, it's always worthwhile. The second trigger is if you buy something that was built after the 16th of September 1987 because you get the original building structure deductions. So if there's $100,000 worth of original building structure, so the bricks and mortar, the concrete slab, the timber frame that was built in 1989, you get $2,500 worth of deductions a year. Now, with depreciation schedules normally costing six or $700, should you pay that to get $2,500 back in your pocket? Almost certainly, and especially if you're renting it for more than a year because you'll get that every year. The other trigger, which is a little bit more nuanced, and I'll just see if I've got a little bit of a, a slide on this one just to break up, you know, break up the face a little bit. So this is actually showing two triggers. The first one isn't on that slide, that's buying brand new. And I guess, cause that's sometimes a little bit obvious, but the other one is if the property is built prior to 1987, so we know new, we know post 87 is gonna be automatically worthwhile. But if it's built prior to 1987, then we're looking for $40,000 worth of renos. Now that's a magic number because $40,000 times by two and a half percent gives you $1,000 worth of depreciation deductions. So yeah, 40,000 divided by or divided by 40 or times 2.5% gives you $1,000 each year. Now, should you pay six, $700 to get $1,000 back in your pocket? Depending on your marginal rate, maybe not if you're only renting it for six or 12 months, but if you're renting it for more than that, absolutely. And $40,000 is not a lot of money to spend on a renovation. If you're doing a kitchen and a bathroom, it's probably gone, right? So if you buy a property that's older that you can see has had a kitchen and bathroom or you can see it's had an extension or a garage, then that should be a trigger for you as well. 
Got it. Nice. Okay. So how does a tax depreciation schedule affect capital gains tax? This is normally like a question that gets heckled at me. There's some, you know, Soviet looking cab driver who goes, this is all this is a conspiracy. You've got to pay it back. <laughs> um, I'm surprised this sort of negativity from you, Goose, actually. But no, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm leaving no stone unturned in a quest to bring truth and clarity to the great investors of Australia. So what does it mean? No, that's good. And, and make, now it makes it sound like I'm hiding something. But no, <laughs> CGT is an important consideration and we can go pretty deep on it. Most of the time it really only applies to the building structure. And what it means is if you buy an investment property and later on you sell it at a profit, then you're, you're opening yourself up to capital gains tax, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you claim on building structure deductions actually reduces your cost base for a capital gains tax calculation. Now, try not to go asleep. We're we're almost there. So let's go stupid numbers. If you buy a house for $100,000 and you sell it for $200,000, you've got a $100,000 capital gain, right? If you claim $10,000 worth of building deductions over that time period, then your cost base goes from 100 to 90, so your capital gain is now 110, right? Does that make sense? So instead of making 100 grand, you made 110 because you're essentially paying back those deductions. But you're not really paying them back because if you own the property for 12 months or more, you get the 50% exemption, right? So then it's just you're paying back, what do I say, 10,000? You're paying back Mm 5,000. And then it's at your marginal rate. So it might be... 37% of $5,000. Now, as long as you're holding it for more than 12 months, that exemption makes a big difference. Then it's at your marginal rate. So you're not paying the whole amount back. And there's a certain value in money today as opposed to in the future, right? So if you can get the benefit of those deductions now, it helps you hold on to the property from a cash flow point of view. It helps you launch into the next one or not, you know, starve on two minute noodles or have some sort of turn at winter then that has a lot of value to you than rather maybe 20 years down the track where that is you know, partially paid back with that capital gains tax sort of balancing thing there. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does. It's a, quite a lot to kind of like unpack there. And I'm a very visual person, but I do understand it. I mean, look, from, from the perspective of, uh, I've got, I hope to never pay capital gains tax because I just want to keep the properties forever. So hopefully it's just a... Mm. Um, you know, I hope it's just a moot point. Okay, so what we've covered now, I think, we, is there anything we haven't covered? Like you, you deal with this day in, day out. From my side, I, I do. I, I, <laughs> you say that you say that with a sigh. <laughs> what else could you tell people or enlighten people that they might not know about tax depreciation and how to really tap into? possibly unknown or unfound resources within their assets? Or have we ticked all the boxes? Look, I think something that people are interested in or or maybe are a little bit confused about is the budget change and also the cutoff date for the building structure. So for some reason, a lot of people remember the cutoff date as 1985. And it used to sort of be 1985, but it was 4% for 25 years. So if you go from 1985 forward 25 years, it's too far back to back claim. So we stopped talking about 85 because it's sort of in the past, but it's 87. And a lot of people think if it's built prior to 87, then there's no value in a schedule. Don't call a quantity surveyor. It's a waste of your time. And that's a very damaging idea. And I've certainly had 
real estate agents and even accountants say there's no value in a depreciation schedule on this property. And I've had a sort of sheepish investor contact me and say, I've been told that it's not worthwhile, but I feel like something's not right. And would you mind just having a look at it? We end up doing a depreciation schedule and sending it to the accountant. And I wish sometimes I could put a little sort of PS, stop giving dodgy advice because you nearly cost them, you know, four grand worth of deductions in, in two years. So that's important. I think it's not going to cost you to send through a realestate.com link of something that you're about to buy or you have bought to have a quantity surveyor say, no, there's nothing in it. And we won't go and do it if there's no value. And I, I'm pretty sure most quantity surveyors are the same. I'll have like a double the fee guarantee. We basically just ensure that it's worthwhile. Otherwise, we'll hit it on the head. And we can really do 98% of that work on the phone or via email with our own research. The other thing is a lot of people sort of thought, well, there's no plant and equipment deductions now. So if you're not buying new, then there's really no value at all. And with the budget changes, we actually modelled our last, well, it wasn't even a model. It was actually a study of our last 1,000 residential depreciation schedules. And I was in the middle of it as the budget speech was going on. I raced into work and I started flicking it to media outlets because I knew that we're the only company that had this data because this was my sort of sneaking up on the marketplace with a new idea and I was about to go gangbusters with it. What we found in that analysis is that 38.2% of our investors bought a brand new property. So in, in a sense, what we're, and I've got a slide for this one. This will... I get the slides up. 38.2% bought a new property. Yep. 38.2% of our clients bought a new property. Now, this can be a little bit skewed because the only people that we register as, you know, a past or a completed report are properties where it's worthwhile, right? So people come to us and say, you know, I bought this and we say, look, there's no value in it. We can't in good faith recommend a schedule, but we'd love to help you on the next time. So, you know, it is a little bit biased to that. But when we looked at some of the stats around the negative gearing sort of rhetoric from the Labor Party, our figures were very close to the AFG on some of the metrics. So I've got a fair amount of faith in it. What we were really trying to do is say, okay, well, they've, they've cancelled plant and equipment. Like how much of a residential depreciation business do we have? Like, I know that um, we're getting a bit sort of little violin here. Not many people worry about sort of the health and well-being of their tax depreciation guy. But I was quite concerned, you know, having staff, like uh, are we in a position where we're needing to let people go? It was very terrifying. But the good news in this situation is that, you know, nearly 40% of people are buying brand new, so they still need us. 69.9% of people are buying a property built after the 87 cutoff date, so they still need us. And of the people that bought a property built prior to 87, 63.8% of them had been renovated and the average value was just under that $40,000 figure, which is $1,000 a year. So that 83%, what I'm getting at there is that in 83.9% of those 1,000 cases, we would still recommend a depreciation schedule being done. So it makes... That's a pretty good sample size. Yeah, it makes it definitely made a difference to the deductions. What's available for people? It, for most people, it'll reduce the deductions. But in terms of wh whether it's worthwhile, the vast majority of people still will benefit from a depreciation schedule. So I'm not trying to say that there's value there when there's not. But I just don't like the idea of people saying, "Well, depreciation's all sort of gone now. It's all changed." There's still a lot of deductions available to people. Yeah, right, right. And I think that's really important for people to know is that there is still a lot there, you know, and a lot of people don't think about it for a start. 
they don't know that it is something they can do. They don't know how it applies and, and, or they've got misconceptions about, you know, what's changed and oh, it's only for new builds and all this kind of stuff. So I think this is really valuable. Now you said that you did that on a sample size of a thousand. Yeah. How many depreciation schedules have you and your company done? That's a good question. It's probably, probably somewhere 10 to 15 times that. Um, we're actually running a, a, an analysis at the moment, so I'm not exactly sure. I used to keep a log of all the depreciation schedules that I've done personally. That sounds fun. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, but I, and I like to collect all the weird things. Like, I mean, I did a trout farm a long time ago, and that was quite interesting. I mean, you'd love some of the chats in the office here. We were talking about in one July 2019, they actually made working dogs plant and equipment. It feels a bit nasty putting an effective life on a working dog, but since you asked, it's eight years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, my brother's a farmer. I would say that that's probably generous, but that's okay. Well, it's actually, I think, confined to like drug sniffer dogs and security guard dogs. I'm not sure if primary production dogs are part of that. I've never actually put a dog in a depreciation schedule, but you know, you've got to have gold. This is a very interesting point. Okay, so I might be, I'm just going again a little bit, a little bit hog wild here. But for someone who runs an agricultural business that also has a dwelling, because what you said at the start goes back to you must be generating an income from it. Yep. Okay, so if you buy a home and you're living in that home, you can't claim depreciation, correct? Yep. Let's walk through a couple of scenarios here. If you were to buy, if you're the get your first homeowner's grant, for example, and then go buy a home, live in it for 12 months, and then move out and then rent it out. Can claim depreciation? Yep. Absolutely, yep. cool. And if you're, a, say, a farmer whose house or dwelling would be considered as part of the business asset, yep. how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can claim, there's a lot of different plant and equipment items with farms, and it depends on the industry. There is, I have a piece of paper here where I was actually interviewed about commercial this morning. There's five and a half pages of plant and equipment items for residential and there's 261 total pages of plant and equipment for everything. So the vast majority is commercial. And if you think about a farm, you've got silos, you've got augers, you've got ATVs, you've got fencing and there's different dogs. effective lights, whether it's, yeah, dogs, you know, electric fencing is different and that sort of thing. Lion cages and stuffed crocodiles are the go-to quantity surveyor joke because they existed in in the effective life legislation as well. So commercial properties have a huge amount of plant and equipment items available. Hang on, hang on a second. Did you say crocodiles? Stuffed crocodiles were plant and equipment. I looked for them the other day. I think they've been taken out. How can stuffed crocodiles be considered plant and equipment? Well, there's a lot of stuff that you would think like, how, how on earth would someone come up with that? Like say, for example, I've got a page open here and I'm looking at tree nut assets de-husking units. So if you're taking the husk off a tree nut, then you can have an eight-year effective life for your troubles. You know, there's a million different things. Like yeah, but that's, but that's not a stuffed crocodile. Like, that's a tool. No, no it, you, arguably it's a, it's a thing that is of use. A stuffed crocodile, I don't know why they specified it so, so specifically when there's, you know, more than enough categories for furniture. It sounds like you're almost getting converted to the sort of nerdy world of tax depreciation. I'll, I'll share with you one of my favourite ones. That's in pubs. Now, I know you're not a drinker, but I'm, I know you've had some good times in the past. If you are going to a pub and you're having dinner, then you're standing on carpet that has an eight-year effective life. If you're in a drinking area of the pub, you're standing on carpet that has a five-year effective life. So somewhere at the ATO, the tax commission is saying, 
how long is this bit of carpet going to last? And someone said, well, are they drinking there? And they're like, no, or eight years. What about this bit? Well, that's next to the bar. That'll be five because drunk people spill stuff. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is very interesting. And I wonder whose job it is to actually work all that out. I was going to say, if you're drinking and dining, then you're breaking the internet. <laughs> you're, you're breaking the matrix of tax legislation. They don't know what book box to put you in. Either stand or be drunk. It's as simple as that. <laughs> so there's a comment here, actually, and I, I don't quite understand it. But I'm going to read it out to you because it might make a hell of a lot more sense to you. Luke Hughes has said, with the changes coming to the tax rates in future, make this less useful and will it make it less worthwhile? I think you've kind of covered that, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if marginal tax rates go down, then almost certainly it will be less value than them being higher. But will it be no value? Almost certainly not. I can't see them dropping the top marginal tax rate to 8%, for example. So, yeah, that's something to consider. But, I mean, we do depreciation schedules for companies that have a 30% marginal rate. We do them for self-managed super funds that can have a 15% marginal rate and they still see the value in getting that done and their accountant still recommends it. So, yes, it is a bit of a moving space and it's a, it's a good question, but it's unlikely to mean the difference between it being worthwhile and not. Got it. Obviously, you're the best. That's why we're talking. I only associate with the best in the okay. best, best of industry. But tell me, how does someone know a good quantity surveyor from a bad quantity surveyor? If they were to go out there and they were like, oh, I don't know about micro, I'm going to go find another quantity surveyor. How can you tell a good one from a bad one? That's a really good question. And it's something that we sort of struggle in our business to sort of to sort of share our passion and our expertise for it. I think when you speak to someone on the phone or you listen to a presentation, you'll see people that are reading off the script that maybe are just using the buzzwords or, you know, the average deductions are X and Y. I mean, I sort of got sick of that and that's why I started doing silly things like instead of saying, like the marketplace was saying, five to $10,000 worth of deductions on average, I'm like, rubbish, I'm going to crunch it. And it was 9000 uh, $183 and I put two decimal places in there to say this is real right so I think the passion is important you've got to be able to communicate with them and and, and I think that you've got to be able to have confidence that they are answering all your questions adequately and Google's a good way to see you know where they've sort of had their articles featured or who they're doing presentations for or the companies that they've worked with that's probably the best way to look at it. I definitely wouldn't suggest it based on price. And there is a problem with, with that because a lot of people say, well, the legislation's the legislation. So how can you do any different? But like, does everybody go to H&R Block when they start earning a million dollars a year? Probably not. They're probably going to a, a big four accountant because there is a certain level of aptitude that enables people to look at custom solutions. And that's something that's really important. Like depending on your situation and your scenario, whether you want to rent it out for six months or, or 40 years, depends on what we can do to, to potentially manipulate those numbers. There are certain things that are set, but yeah, any, anyone that's charging under sort of six or $700, I would be saying there's really not enough time to have that report done properly because we have to send people to go and do the inspections. We have to contact the local authorities like the council to see if there's been any applications for improvements. We might have to get strata plans. We have to crunch the numbers and we have to look at it and say, is this the best that we can do for that investor? And that takes a little bit of time and sometimes you get what you pay for. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I actually had a very similar conversation 
with someone yesterday who was saying, oh, well, talking about paying for our services, buyer's agent fee. And they were like, oh, but, oh you know, somebody can do it for $2,000. And I was like, well, that's great. I mean, fantastic. Go for it. Like I actually encourage them. I said, give it, give it a crack, see how you go. But the thing is, it's, it's kind of like buying a Hyundai versus buying a Ferrari, right? You know, they're both cars at the end of the day and very, very different performance, very different price point. And this is kind of what we want to do here is we want to provide value to people and really better help people to you know, accelerate yes. their wealth journey in every way we can. Right. So there's, all, there's always going to be someone cheaper, I think. To, to provide the level of report that we want to do, we, we can't. And if that means that we're out of touch with what the marketplace is doing, then that might just be mean that I'm going to find another career because I'm not prepared to look in myself in the mirror thinking I've spent a day doing like 80% of a job because already I have to look at this. This is where the people of the podcast are doing good because they don't have to look at my face. But Absolutely. You know, you got to do right. I would say as the fastest growing quantity surveyors and, and tax appreciation experts in the country, I mean, you must be doing something right. So, you know. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> okay, mate. Well, look, it's been a very scintillating conversation on what would otherwise be a, a somewhat dry topic. And I really hope it's brought a lot of value to the people that are listening to this, watching this, or in any way interacting with this platform, communication method, everything like that. Now, Mike, if people wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. You can go to our website, which is MCG, like the cricket ground, and then it's QS for quantity surveyor. So MCG QS. Um, you can find uh, a contact us page. You can email me um, as well. I'm just mike at mcgqs.com.au. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm probably easy to get on LinkedIn because I don't always see the message pop-ups on Facebook and there's a lot of, lot of spam, a lot of SEO stuff. But yeah, I'm pretty easy to Google and find. Okay, awesome. Well, mate, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate okay. that. I really appreciate you bringing value to our community and our group and, and the people interacting with us. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Good fun. Cheers, mate. Thanks, mate. Speak soon.